Hello, this is Congressman Jim Clyburn, and I would like to welcome you to my podcast, Clyburn Chronicles. I've always been a lover of history. I see this platform as a way to connect history with the politics of today. This is so important because as Judge Santiano once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Each episode, my guest and I will have a conversation about the lessons of the past, the politics of the present, and how we must learn from those experiences to help shape the future. Thank you for taking time to listen, and welcome to Clyburn Chronicles. Hello, this is Congressman Jim Clyburn. Welcome to another edition of Clyburn Chronicles. Today, uh, I'm very pleased to have with us as a guest, someone who is pretty familiar to a lot of you and very familiar to me. Uh, I uh, hesitate to call him a guest uh, because I have gotten to know him very, very well. Uh, he is Cedric Richmond, uh, who until recently represented the 2nd Congressional District of Louisiana, uh, having served in that capacity for 10 years. Uh, and prior to uh, becoming a congressman from Louisiana, uh, Cedric was a, a state senator uh, and, of course, a practicing attorney in New Orleans. Uh, he's a graduate of Morehouse College uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, and Tulane uh, Law School uh, in uh, Louisiana. Uh, Cedric, uh, upon coming to Congress, uh, made a name for himself rather quickly, and after only six years became chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, and were it not for the fact that I at one time served in that capacity, I might say hey, he was the best chair we ever had. Uh, but he did a very, very effective job as chair, so much so. Until when I became a majority whip the second time two years ago, uh, I uh, named him assistant to the whip so he could uh, be by my side and to uh, help me uh, navigate through the very difficult job of counting votes and getting to know the people in the caucus. He did such a good job at that until when uh, Joe Biden decided to run for president. Uh, one of the first people he sat down with uh, was Cedric Richmond. Uh, and they invited Cedric to his uh, campaign staff. Cedric became a co-chair. Uh, of the campaign. And um, I'm not, I don't have to tell any of you uh, that um, uh, he was a very effective co-chair. Uh, and uh, I can say without any fear of contradiction, that is successful contradiction, uh, that he is really uh, the backbone of that victory. Uh, it took place uh, 
was sewed up really surprisingly in the state of Georgia, where he attended uh, undergraduate school and knew the communities down there real well and was able uh, to help navigate uh, issues that um, uh, a lot of people uh, know uh, was coordinated or chaired by Stacey Abrams. Uh, but uh, Stacey uh, often called upon and knew she could rely upon Cedric Richmond to help her uh, do what is necessary to deliver Georgia uh, for uh, the Democratic candidate uh, for president. The first time that it happened since 1992. And so I'm pleased to have Cedric here with me today because uh, about a week ago, uh, he started out uh, as senior advisor to the President of the United States, uh, and he is also the director of the White House Office of Public Engagement. And he is going to tell us a little bit about what that uh, public engagement entails, uh, and uh, uh, I'll ask him a few questions in order to uh, further explain to the public uh, why it's necessary to keep in mind that elections have consequences. And with that, uh, let me welcome uh, my friend, uh, Cedric Richmond, uh, at Two Clyburn Chronicles, and ask him to just explain to us exactly uh, what his new role is going to be. Cedric? Well, uh, Jim, and, and to the whip, thank you for having me. Uh, in summary, my new role will be what my old role was, which is I, I work for you and answer to you. So uh, I don't think much <laughs> is going to uh, change. Um, look, I think that, the, and I'll just start with this. I think the Biden victory was a victory for Black America. I think it was a victory caused by Black America. And I think that we had a, a whole bunch of uh, African-American elected official, African-American activists, African-American business owners, um, just the, you know, the black business uh, fundraising arm headed by Marcus Mason, I think raised about $30 million. So African-Americans showed up in every sense of the word in, in terms of this victory. So the question becomes, what does it mean? And I'll just start with my office. It means that <clears throat> you have an office of public engagement that will actually engage with different communities and constituencies to see what um, success in the future looks like to them. So the day of helping Black people or Hispanic people or poor people or any marginalized people in spite of themselves, it's over. They deserve a seat at the table. They deserve uh, a say in being architects to their own future and so co-architects. And so that's what we're going to do. And, and I've announced a whole bunch of different things I want to do differently. One is I said I would do outreach to conservatives. Um, but also I said I was going to do outreach and we would have somebody who deals with formerly incarcerated people. Because we know that that is a marginalized segment of community. And if you want to know what would help them be prosperous and successful best, ask them. Don't ask academics. Uh, academians ask uh, people who actually lived it. So our job is going to be to 
make sure that we are communicating with our different constituencies. So whether it's uh, racial constituencies, whether it's the disabled, whether it's um, formerly incarcerated, whether it's gun violence groups, whether it's immigration groups, we're going to uh, engage with them to make sure that they understand one, that they're welcome, but two, that their input is welcome at the White House. Well, you know, that's very interesting. I'm glad to uh, sort of give just a broad overview of that because I think uh, you touched on some things that I want to dive into a little bit uh, more, but I want first so that people uh, will be able uh, to um, put some uh, context uh, to the content. And so I want you to tell us a little bit about who you are. Now, I, I know uh, you, I know your family, and I know a little bit about your history, but you know, uh, having risen to become a United States Congressman, now sitting in the White House, uh, I wish the, uh, my listeners could see what I see, because I'm doing this podcast while looking at you in your office in the background, uh, that fancy telephone on the wall, uh, carpet on the floor, <laughs> uh, all the kinds of things you expect for someone working in the White House. But tell people a little bit about your background, what and where you came from. Well, you know, I should have probably expected that from you because you always say that we are a product of our life experiences. And so uh, I think that that oftentimes you can tell who a person is by where they came from, or you can tell their values. And I hope that that's the case. I mean, look, uh, I'm from, New Orleans, public school graduate. Um, my mother's from Lake Providence, Louisiana, which is the poorest place in the country, but produced a bunch of leaders, African-American leaders. My dad was from Prentice, Mississippi, and uh, his dad owned a funeral home, owned farmland and real estate. He was uh, very successful in terms of African-Americans during his generation. My mother, on the other hand, had 15 brothers and sisters. And my grandmother is the fancy word for it now, I guess it's domestic. Back then they called her a housekeeper. And so they were one of the poorest families in this poorest place in the country. But they both went to Southern University on the same day. My mother went sharing a jacket with her sister. I don't understand to this day how you share a jacket 100 or 200 miles away. Uh, my dad showed up on the first day of college with a brand new deuce and a quarter uh, vehicle because my grandfather didn't want him walking around Southern State campus with a bad heart. Uh, and I say that to say education was the great equalizer. And so I saw it firsthand uh, because my daddy being rich, my mother being poor, you know, they got there on the same day. And, and I used to say they graduated at the same time until my mother pulled me aside and said, hey, boy, won't you stop lying? you know your daddy had to go to summer school. So she graduated first. Uh, and and it, it shows that if we invest in education and give people real access, everybody can achieve great things. And so they moved to New Orleans. My dad then had a heart attack when I was seven and died. My mother was a public school teacher and you know, the whole family stepped up and, and they 
helped us. And then she met my stepdad and he was an entrepreneur. And, you know, I watched the small business side of it. And so then I went to Morehouse and Tulane. And, but the biggest thing that got me in the public office was that I was coaching Little League from the time I was 16 to the time that I finished law school. And we didn't have real investment into our kids. So one night, just complaining about it at the dinner table, my mom was like, do something about it. I didn't tell her what I would do, but I ran for office for state rep against a 13-year incumbent. And when I would go knock on doors, people would say, oh, my, Coach Cedric's at the door. And all of a sudden, we got 63%, and I was elected to the state house at 26. But it was because I saw what was happening with our children. And we want to blame stuff on our kids, but we don't give them a lot of activity. We don't invest in them a lot. And... So uh, that's been one of my focuses. And then, you know, being a state rep, Katrina and Rita hit New Orleans was decimated. Uh, fortunately, Pelosi put you, Jim, over hurricane recovery for the New Orleans area and things got better. But that's when I realized that Congress was the major league and that's where you need to go. And so I ran for Congress. I lost the first time, ran again, I won. And uh, I would like to think that, you know, New Orleans is better because I was in Congress. And I know that New Orleans and the South and Black communities all across the country will be better because Joe Biden is in the White House and I tagged along. Well, one of the reasons I wanted you to uh, tell listeners a little bit uh, about your background is because, as you know, I, um, I have three daughters and uh, I uh, have told them all of their lives. And, uh, and I say to young people, uh, to find something to do for which you're not paid. And you just uh, shared with my listeners a great example of that. Uh, you were not paid uh, to coach Little League Baseball. You were doing that in order to give, help give good experiences uh, to young people in your community. I played Little League Baseball played Pony League Baseball, and I always believe, uh, in fact, to this day, I wrote about it in my book. My Pony League coach uh, was one, uh, I still think about him almost daily. Uh, his name was James T. McCain. We call him Nickel McCain. Uh, and not, not only was, was he my Little League Baseball, John Lewis, the late John Lewis, our longtime friend, uh, who passed away uh, uh, last year. John Lewis once told me that Nickel McCain, uh, next to Martin Luther King Jr., may have been the person he idolized more, my point of league baseball coach. Uh, and so Nickel didn't get paid to coach me point of league baseball, uh, but he helped to mold me. And, uh, and I maintain that is those things that you do for which you're not paid that really pay off best for you. Uh, because it wasn't the, uh, the practice of law that got you elected to Congress. It was the people you met and the little children that you helped develop uh, in point of lead. And those families never forget that. And they usually pay back very handsomely. And so I congratulate you for that. Uh, let me ask you, uh, just to share with us a little bit uh, about uh, what you feel will be uh, 
your uh, and President Biden's um, future, uh, how you are going to uh, fulfill the promises you made. Y'all made a lot of promises <laughs> to the people. Uh, now tell me uh, so far uh, what y'all doing to fulfill those promises. Well, look, I, I'll tell you that it's been a very active uh, first eight days now. And the good news is that all the executive orders, he's doing exactly what he said he was going to do on the campaign. So to those who didn't like him, uh, our response was it shouldn't be a surprise because that's what he told the American people he was going to do. And to those who do like him, he's keeping his word. And so he started off on day one uh, with uh, protecting the dreams and laying out a plan and the desire to give 11 million people a pathway to uh, citizenship. Uh, he also did a whole of government racial equity executive order, which is the first time it's ever been done. And so what that executive order is really doing is making sure that we set expectations, we monitor and benchmark on every agency and department within the federal government to see what they're doing uh, in terms of racial equity and make sure that we look at all of our actions through that lens of how it's gonna help. Uh, even in our COVID executive orders, we mentioned um, health disparities and making sure we reach underserved communities. Uh, we, you know, there's some people who weren't happy about it, but we rescinded the permit on the uh, Keystone Pipeline. Uh, he campaigned and said he was gonna do it and he rounded it out with a number of executive orders yesterday, pausing leases on federal uh, property uh, for oil and gas, uh, but also uh, saying that we're gonna expedite uh, permitting and siting for renewable energy. So to create jobs and we're gonna uh, create jobs by uh, doing something with those old uh, landmines and brownfields and all of those uh, things, all the old mines. And so, you know, what we've been trying to do is just make sure that we do those things that we can do, that we promise to do, but to set a tone. So yesterday, a um, day before yesterday was important because uh, he signed four executive orders one of which was to uh, stop the use of private prisons uh, for Department of Justice, one of which was to direct HUD to break down uh, systemic uh, barriers to wealth for Black people and Brown people and to look at how to increase home ownership and fair housing. One was to, uh, you know, restore the status of nation to nation uh, respect with our Native Americans and their sovereignty. And then the last one was to root out xenophobia and all of the backlash and, and you know, racism coming out against uh, our Asian American and Pacific Islanders. So that was just, you know, that was to set the tone. And if you listen to his speech, he said, look, we're going to get to criminal justice reform. But racial equity doesn't start and end with criminal justice reform. There's a big economic component and education component uh, to it. He called for renewing the Voting Rights Act, which is important to us. And Jim, 
I know that you have, uh, Congressman, I know that you have worked on for years. You've helped renew it before, and we're going to have to renew it again because it's uh, important. And if you look at all these states now running to pass, and I think it's 100 voter suppression laws that have now been introduced uh, since Biden's election, uh, President Biden's election, uh, it shows you where we are. And so we have a lot of work to do. Uh, the good news is that I think that uh, this president is, he is who we thought he was and he's doing what he said he was gonna do, but it's gonna take Congress to, to help. And then, you know, uh, Congressman, you know, as well as I do that we sent over the American Rescue Plan uh, to Congress and, you know, it has racial equity embedded all throughout it. And it's something we're gonna need to do. And, you know, Republicans and conservatives are saying it's too big. Well, COVID's too big. You know, talk to the people that are in a, uh, the food pantry lines or the people that are filing for unemployment benefits, the 850 that filed for them last week for the first time, the 18 million getting unemployment. You know, so we have a lot of work to do and we don't wanna, I told the uh, TMZ earlier today when I did an interview, they said, oh, you all did a lot of great stuff in the first seven days. Are you all talking about it? I said, no. Emmett Smith, one of the best running backs of all time. You never saw Emmett Smith do a touchdown dance. You never saw him throw the ball in the stands. Emmett Smith would score a touchdown, run, put the ball by the pylon. He'd run to the bench and get ready to work some more. And so that's what we're going to do. And it, there will be a time for us to remind people of what we, uh, we did, what we said we were going to do. But that's not today. We have to get COVID under control. Yeah, you're right about that. No question about uh, COVID-19 uh, has to get uh, behind us uh, or uh, too many difficulties uh, will continue uh, to lie before us. Uh, so what we've got to uh, uh, do is work together. Now, I understand the Congress got to help, but one of the things I want to point out to my listeners, and uh, as you just pointed out, um, the president on day one signed 15 executive orders. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, he came back uh, the second or third day with 11. Did four today. And now uh, a lot of people say, well, you make all these promises. He can't do this. The Congress got to do that, the other. Yes, Congress has to do a lot. But I often remind people that the Emancipation Proclamations, there were two of them, they were executive orders. They brought an end to slavery, at least in the uh, form of slave states. But we had to have a constitutional amendment to outlaw slavery, and that didn't come until 1869, but slaves were freed immediately upon the signing uh, of the 1862 Emancipation Proclamation, they were freed in the District of Columbia. And of course, the one, uh, the second one became effective January 1, 1863. So uh, these executive orders are the consequences uh, of the November 3rd election. And all these things are going to happen right now. Like they say, one of the executive orders today was just to reverse what Trump was doing to the Affordable Care Act. And so uh, that affected uh, people with pre-existing conditions. Uh, so uh, a lot of people may not like it, 
uh, but we are going to move to um, uh, codify what was in the executive order, but it's going to be in effect while we're working to codify it. Uh, so I think these executive orders are very important. Uh, they help to set a tone. Uh, they tell people, yes, I said I was going to do it, and with the stroke of a pen, I've done it. And uh, hopefully the Congress will catch up with me. Uh, and we are going to work in the Congress uh, to try to help uh, Congress get caught up. Now, you mentioned um, uh, something that you worked on a whole lot while you were in Congress. And I, uh, I know you may be getting out in front of what your plans are, because I don't know what your schedule is. But uh, people are waiting to hear uh, about uh, justice in policing. Uh, they were waiting to hear about uh, what we're going to do for the previously incarcerated. Uh, they were waiting to hear about what we're going to do to overcome the uh, current effects uh, of um, those three big crime bills that we heard so much about in the campaign. Uh, you want to share a little bit with us about what uh, we, our listeners uh, can uh, look forward to as your fashion responses to the 1986, 1988, and 1994 crime bills? Uh, I can tell you we're going to embark on real criminal justice reform. Uh, I can't tell you the exact date right now. Uh, the other thing I can tell you in policing is that uh, what we're working on and, and doing right now is making sure that whatever we do can become law in that it is not at the whim of a president in terms of executive orders that changes as the presidents come in, that it's not just uh, wishful thinking, but that we actually make substantial progress on the way police are policing black communities and the way they are handling African-Americans. And so uh, when we look at George Floyd, which he mentioned in his executive order, uh, he is serious about doing what George Floyd's daughter, Gianna, uh, said, which was making sure her dad changed the world. And so we are uh, going to embark on policing reform. We're going to embark on criminal justice reform. We see and know all the inequities in the criminal justice system. And so when we start talking about systemic racism, we absolutely are talking about the criminal justice system where it's so glaring. Uh, but we want to do it in a very comprehensive manner because the, the racism and discrimination in both of them are so rampant and so uh, entrenched that it's going to be something that takes some work to get done. But the part I'm happiest about, and I hope this is the answer to your question, uh, you know, my grandmother used to always say where there's the will, there's a way. Uh, I can assure you that there's the will of this administration, this president and vice president, to embark on policing and criminal justice reform. Well, uh, you're right about that. I heard that a lot growing up myself. Uh, the president has uh, demonstrated uh, and expressed the willingness to get something done. And when the president has a will, uh, usually his staff will find a way. Uh, so I'm convinced uh, that uh, a way will be developed for us to get uh, beyond uh, these particular issues. 
You and I have uh, talked a little bit before we started here today uh, about um, uh, one of our mutual friends uh, going to, uh, before the committee uh, on the Senate Banking Committee uh, to uh, for a confirmation here today. Uh, I'm sure that the vote's going to come out all right, uh, and she'll be confirmed uh, to be uh, Secretary of HUD. Um, Marsha Fudge, uh, the current Congresswoman from Cleveland, Ohio, who was once a mayor. Uh, and by the way, uh, when I first met Marsha Fudge, uh, she was working on the Hill. She was Chief of Staff uh, for Stephanie Tubbs Jones. And she was an international president of Delta Sigma Theta. Uh, it demonstrates, uh, once again, that the, the AKAs, the Divine Nine, of course, that's something you don't know a whole lot about, uh, well represented uh, in this administration. Uh, and now the, the Delta is on the scene. Uh, and I know that you have a lot of interest uh, in housing uh, and the programs that are in HUD. Uh, I know you, like I, are anxiously uh, looking for Marshall to take the helm uh, and get some things done. Because you still have some problems even in New Orleans, uh, going all the way back to Katrina and Rita. Well, look, I think that, I think a lot of people uh, discount the importance and the depth and breadth of HUD. Uh, when you start talking about banking, home ownership, when you start talking about recovering from natural disasters of which hurricanes, um, your district, my district, we've had to recover, uh, HUD plays an extremely important part of it. And having someone with shared life experiences, someone who has uh, been a mayor is going to be important. And look, you know, the highest compliment uh, that I give to elected officials is one little phrase. Uh, she gets it. Uh, she understands the, the trials that people go through just to make it. And that some of our children should get the Nobel Peace Prize just for showing up to school every day. And so uh, I think that she's gonna be a very big part of this administration. Uh, and I think that her being at uh, HUD is a clear indication of how seriously we're taking empowerment. And, you know, I didn't get a chance to talk about it, but, you know, I'm glad you raised it, um, Congressman. The talent that we have in this administration, I mean, Susan Rice leading the Domestic Policy Council is a big deal. Uh, we have a, uh, ambassador to the UN. We have Council of Economic uh, Advisors, which she testified today, C.C. Rouse. Uh, we have the vice president and you know and jim you played a, a very big role in making sure that we had the first african-american man to lead uh the department of defense and that's general austin at secretary of defense and then we would have an african-american man overseeing epa and as we talk about environmental justice and all of those things uh how important it is and so we are uh making sure that we have talent and life experiences that can achieve it but uh, we all know Marsha Fudge, and what you see is what you get with her. So when you saw her nomination here in the day, and 
and you saw, uh, you know, her count to 10, it's because she needed to count to 10. <laughs> because if she, if she thinks it, it's coming out. And <laughs> she is very direct. And, uh, but she doesn't forget where she came from. And she doesn't forget that there are a whole bunch of families that are being left behind, that we need to make sure that we help them uh, catch up. Yeah, uh, I think he, he had get go to 12, 13, one or two times uh, before responding. Uh, you, you're right about that. But you know, I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the people of color uh, who are going to be a part of this administration. And uh, though you stopped at the uh, basically the department heads, I'm particularly impressed with the uh, what I call the second tier uh, of uh, leadership uh, that's coming on board. Uh, I looked over the Department of, of Agriculture. I just got a notice a couple of days ago that the number two person over there is going to be an African American woman. Uh, I think that is uh, great news, and I've seen. Uh, that uh, others, uh, other departments that are being considered. I won't mention others. I only mention Ag because that's been announced and it's been in the public arena already. But you'll see that happen in, in other uh, agencies as well. And so I'm, I'm very pleased with um, uh, the way things are shaping up uh, with this administration. And I'm looking forward to us uh, having a... Uh, an administration that people uh, can not just be proud of, they can really feel that when they went to the polls last November, uh, they are getting a good return uh, on that investment they made of time and effort and to go out and cast their votes uh, because uh, of what happened, record numbers of people voting in Georgia, uh, things happened that people never thought uh, could happen. Uh, record numbers of people voting in um, in Arizona. Uh, uh, things happen that people thought uh, would never happen. And I hope these uh, and other indications uh, will allow people to see uh, just how important it is to participate in this process. Because uh, I'm sure uh, that we'll see over the next uh, two or three years uh, that it is worth uh, the effort, uh, because that's what we're going to have to do to get things back on track. Now, you were on the Hill. Uh, in fact, uh, you were uh, in that Mark office, uh, or the grip office, uh, which is just off statutory uh, hall, statutory hall. Uh, statutory hall uh, was uh, what most people saw when they saw the inside of the building during the so-called insurrection. Uh, and uh, of course, when I spoke with you afterwards, you informed me that you were in that office and uh, uh, were not disturbed. But there's some offices that were not marked that really uh, got disturbed. And, um, and now we're trying to figure out uh, where we go from here. I just saw a couple of days ago that some senators are doing something that's never been done before. Uh, filing an ethics complaint against one of their own. And I understand the same thing's gonna be done in the house. Uh, I know as a part of this administration, uh, you all gotta stay out of 
legislative business, uh, but I also know uh, that as someone who has lived in the South, uh, practiced politics in the South, got elected from the South, educated in the South, uh, you may uh, have some feelings about um, uh, what you think we can do to help transform the South uh, into a more perfect union. Well, I, I would say this, uh, Jim, as sitting in that office while it was going on was one thing. But when I got home, it became another. That's when the anger really set in of what happened, uh, the violation that was there. Uh, but I will just tell you that, you know, anybody, especially from a black family or that a black family from the South, <coughs> we learned early on that there are consequences and repercussions to all of our actions. Uh, most in, you know, most of mine were very swift and involved a switch, but there were nevertheless consequences and repercussions. And there should be some for leading an insurrection uh, of our government. And it, first of all, and I, I want people to understand that we're not just rushing to condemn Trump, but you and I have talked about this. Let's just go back for 30 seconds and I can explain it all. At the last, at the debate with President Biden, he said to white supremacists, stand back and stand by. Then he loses. He summons those same white nationalists and white supremacists to Washington, D.C., has them organized. Then he goes and takes the stage and say, we got to take our country back. And the only way we keep our country, take our country is to go, points at the Capitol and says, go down to that Capitol and fight. Now, he lies to his crowd by saying, I'm going to come with you. But that's generally what people do. But he tells them to go to the Capitol and fight. Then he goes back to the White House and watches it on TV while the Capitol is under attack. And they get, and Capitol Police get no help. And so, yeah, for that, there should be consequences and repercussions. But your question was about the South. And, and here's where I think the answer is. Uh, one, I think that uh, Georgia tells us that we can do well in the South. Uh, but two, I think it shows that we need to really invest in the South in political infrastructure and in the lives of people who live in the South. Southern governors, for the longest, have run for office and have practiced austerity. And they mislead people by pitting poor white people against black people. And so, you know, it's almost like three-card money or misdirection. But all they're doing is getting people to vote against their own self-interest by giving them an opponent or a foil or an enemy. And that happens too much in the South. But the real thing, what we should be doing in the South is investing in our people. We have very creative people. We have uh, all of those things, but we don't invest in education. We don't invest in healthcare. We don't invest in poverty reduction plans, such as summer jobs for youth, uh, first time home buyer program, job skills training. We don't do any of that. All those governors do is cut, cut, cut and those Southern states lead 
are always in the bottom 10 in everything that's bad. And then, I mean, they're in the bottom 10 in everything that's good. And they're in the top 10 of everything that's bad. So if you look at Louisiana, Mississippi, we always fight for one and two in poverty. We always fight for last or second to last in education and home ownership, health outcomes, all of those things. So, you know, one of the things I'll be pushing for in administration is uh, significant investment in the South and it, particularly those black communities in the South uh, that with investment would really prosper. That's uh, uh, exactly where I wanted you to go with that because I think it is so important for us to remember uh, still to this day, um, the majority of African Americans in this country still live in the South. Uh, and uh, the, almost all of the HBCUs uh, we talk so much about are in the South. Uh, I say almost all. Uh, the very first one, of course, was in Pennsylvania, uh, Cheney State, and there's still uh, some uh, that are not in the South. But we always uh, separate uh, HBCUs from minority serving institutions because they are. They have a different history and a different uh, role of play. But these schools are still in the South. In my district, for instance, uh, I have seven HBCUs. Uh, South Carolina, there are eight. There's one up in Rock Hill that's not in my district. Uh, but we have more than 100. And I've got eight of them right here in South Carolina, seven in my district. And these schools uh, really um, get students that um, are in need of uh, special attention when they come from underfunded school districts in the rural South. Um, uh, they need smaller classrooms. They need uh, professors and teachers uh, with the similar backgrounds and experiences. Uh, and I think that when they get that, we demonstrate time and time again uh, how well we can do. And you are uh, an example of that. I often tell the story about Ron McNair, uh, the astronaut from Little Town of Lake City, South Carolina, uh, who got a PhD in physics from MIT uh, and became a, a very successful astronaut. Ron told me just before that fatal flight that he took that people always introduce him as this black guy with a PhD in physics from MIT. But he told me that the key to his success was those four years he spent at North Carolina A&T, uh, where the teachers understood uh, what it was like to grow up in a community where you were not allowed to use the library uh, and uh, was able to give you the special attention you need to cause you to blossom. And I'm pleased that you are where you are because I really think uh, that having the, the experience you've had there at Morehouse and other students that you interacted with that coming from all over the rural South, you're talking about the Sea Islands of Georgia, uh, that were shut off from the mainland for so many years here in South Carolina. I can remember uh, when they built bridges from some of those islands, Johns Island, James Island, Wabamalo Island, uh, to the mainland. And so it makes a difference uh, when you go to smaller classes uh, and have people who have shared backgrounds. So I just want to thank you for being here with me today. And I want to thank you for being who and what you are. Uh, I am, am 
as confident uh, in the success that you're going to have going forward as I am uh, in the success, I believe, strongly that we will have uh, with uh, President uh, Joe Biden and Vice President uh, Kamala Harris. Uh, because although she grew up in California, she made the choice uh, to go to an HBCU, uh, Howard University, uh, and become a part of uh, an African-American uh, sorority. Uh, and that experience, I think, is going to help her uh, be successful as well. Uh, so let me thank you for meeting with me today. I know that you've got to uh, get back to running the country. Uh, I look forward to seeing you. I think you and I may have a date Tuesday evening. Uh, if the information I got uh, from Marsha Fudge is correct, and maybe that'll give us a chance to um, wish each other well. I'm going uh, <laughs> to hate to be hanging out on the hill without you and Marsha, uh, but our good friend Bennett Thompson and uh, Sanford Bishop, Bennett also went to an HBCU Tougaloo. Sanford Bishop went to Morehouse, as you did. Uh, you, uh, we're breaking up the old gang, but we'll do okay without you guys. Well, we're, we're going to be there. We're only right down the street. And uh, I think part of what has been key to our success is making sure that uh, we always communicate, we always share ideas, and we always push. So uh, I don't think that's going to uh, change. So, uh, you know, that's what's important. Well, I can plan to keep doing this podcast, and I hope that maybe uh, in a few months down the road, uh, there'll be some things happening that you can come back and share with my listeners because Clyburn Chronicles can always uh, benefit uh, from your experiences and others. And maybe in about six months, we'll have you back uh, so that you can share with us some of the successes. And maybe uh, uh, people will get, my listeners will get a much a better attitude and hopefully a much better idea uh, of why it's so necessary uh, to participate in the process as they did last November. So, Cedric, thank you so much for being with me. Uh, good luck. And uh, uh, when you get a chance, how about sending me your new phone numbers? Well, we're going to talk about that. Uh, we're going to talk about that Tuesday night. And I, I'm sure... <laughs> I'm sure after some Coca-Cola, uh, uh, would you can you might be able to persuade me to uh, give it to you. So, but it's not going to be free. It's going to you're going to have to treat me to Coca-Cola. So, well, I'll do that, and I'll add something to it. All right. Okay, guy. Thank you so much. Well, thank you all so much for listening uh, to another uh, edition of Clyburn Chronicles. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clyburn Chronicles. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by leaving a comment. And don't forget to subscribe to my show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Congressman Jim Clyburn.